That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Our podcast, The Hartman Report, is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the most comprehensive suite of phone features for business at the lowest price. Go to Phone.com, P-H-O-N-E.com, and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to save 20%. That's Phone.com, code TOM. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. But I'd like to open the hour with a learning opportunity for all of us Americans about how British politics works. There are all these headlines and all these newspapers, and particularly on websites that have an international audience, about Boris Johnson and Brexit and the Queen and dissolving Parliament or pausing Parliament and words that I'm not even familiar with. So I thought, let's get our expert on all things British on Victoria Jones, who is a U.S. citizen but was born in the United Kingdom. She is the chief Washington analyst for the D.C. radio company. Her Twitter handle is Victoria Jones DC, spelled just like you might think. Victoria, welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Yes, confusing it is. And in fact, I have a headline and a couple of lines from an editorial board that might surprise you today. Go for it. Headline, Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament is an affront to democracy. First sentence, Boris Johnson has detonated a bomb under the constitutional apparatus of the United Kingdom. So that's something there. And then it says in the third paragraph, history has shown that charlatans, demagogues, and would-be dictators have little time for representative government. They seek ways around Parliament before including it is an inconvenience. Mr. Johnson may not be a tyrant, but he has set a dangerous precedent. He and the cabal around him, who have chosen this revolutionary path, should be careful what they wish for. Who do you think wrote this? I don't know. The Financial Times. Oh, my goodness. Which is based in the UK, but is generally not all that political. I mean, is it appropriate to say analogously You know, an analogy to this would be in the United States if, say, Donald Trump or even Mitch McConnell, who runs the Senate, were to decide that there's a big deal event coming up in October and we really don't want you talking about it. 
And so we're just going to suspend Congress. We're going to call for a five-week or a ten-week vacation for Congress. So Congress won't be able to pass any laws. They won't be able to pass any resolutions. They won't be able to do anything until maybe a week before this event when I can just kind of shove it all down their throats. Is that analogy apt? Yes. And what we're do is we're going to pretend that the reason for it is because we have party conferences during that time and it's so that we can come back with a big domestic agenda. This is sort of like what Mitch McConnell has done with gun control. I mean, you know, after this last shooting, there were all these calls to call Congress back into session to pass reasonable gun control measures. And Mitch McConnell was like, oh, no, no, we're going to wait until September. It's all good. Don't worry. Uh, in September, we'll take this up and it'll, we'll be very thoughtful about it. And we'll have time to think about it and look at policy. And it was I'm sure it's all a lie. I think he's just waiting it out. Well, and of course, this is what Boris Johnson is attempting to do. And there are currently three attempts to block him in the courts. He's put the Queen, who never did any harm to anybody, in the impossible position on her vacation also of having to say yes to him, because if she said no... She would be not taking the advice of her ministers and would be going against really all precedent. And it would be an impossible thing for her to do. Well, all precedent back to the 19th century, right? Yes, yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean really, the queen used to run the impossible. show. <laughs> or maybe the yeah, 17th century. I don't know which century it was that basically Parliament well, took the reins of the government. Well, they took the reins of government in 1649 when they chopped the head off King Charles I. Okay. So this no. would be going back to 1649? Yeah, it didn't end well. So Right. <laughs> right. So uh, Boris Johnson has been portrayed in the American media. He is the new conservative prime minister of the United Kingdom. And he has been portrayed in our media as kind of this rumpled, crazy-haired, sort of a conservative version of the caricature of Bernie Sanders with the assertion, and nobody's really making this assertion about Bernie, maybe that's a, an unfair comparison, but at least visually that's the comparison. But in terms of policy and, and all these kind of things, he's been portrayed as kind of a bumbler. And this no. seems to me like blood sport politics. He's pulled out the knives and he's just going for the opposition. Yeah, and I thought he was going to do that. There have been rumblings and op-eds about what would happen if he did this. We should remember that he went to Eton, the most exclusive private boarding school in the UK, and then he went to Oxford. And he didn't just get into Oxford. He was a real student at Oxford. And then, you know, he was a columnist and various things, and he plagiarized, and he was fired. But he is not a fool. He plays the role of being a bumbler. It's an assumed role. Wow. So how is this going to play out, Victoria? And why should Americans care about it? Well, one reason they should care about it is that the pound fell immediately, and the pound is a financial center. So if the pound falls, and if there is a hard crash out of Brexit, that will impact the European stock market, the Asian stock market, the American stock market. That affects anybody who's got any kind of saving. It ultimately affects the prices of everything. It impacts imports and exports. It impacts confidence and optimism. It impacts all these things. And with our particular economy so precarious, you know, and with this yield curve, which most of us don't understand, here in the U.S. teetering, it wouldn't take very much 
for something major international to trigger other international events. So people are very worried about this. Yeah. And by the way, to explain the yield curve in really simple terms. Go on. If you are an investor and you're looking for places that are safe to put your money, typically, you know, you buy blue chip stocks or you buy short term bonds, uh, short term bonds, because, you know, over time, interest rates may go up and you're going to make more money. I mean, you'll be able to buy future bonds that pay even more. But if you think that the economy is headed for a really serious downturn, like things are just going to fall apart, like it's going to be like 2008 or 1929. If you think that as a big investor, and I'm talking about giant institutions as well as small investors, but it's giant institutions that are driving this state pension funds and billion dollar hedge funds, then what you do is you buy 10 and 20 year bonds because you know that even if it's like the Great Depression, which lasted 10 years, your bond is going to continue to make payments to you. You're not going to lose your equity and you're going to be safe. So people start buying these long-term bonds. And what that does is the demand for those bonds drives down their yield. You know, they don't have to pay as much to get people to buy them. And when the yield on the long-term bonds goes down below the yield on the short-term bonds, that's called a yield inversion. What it means basically is everybody wants to buy long-term bonds. Nobody wants to buy short-term bonds because everybody's freaked out that the end is near. Make sense? I've got it. Good. Yeah. Cool. And just moving to bonds as a beginning point indicates that people are freaked out about the stock market. But when they move to long-term bonds, they're freaked out that something far worse than a short recession is coming. Yes. Yes. Now, to give you an idea of what's coming up, by the way, in Mm -hmm. the UK, protests. Not only is there a petition that's been signed by over 1.4 million people just in the very short time since Boris Johnson announced this prorogation, as it's known as. Mm. But Momentum, which is a grassroots group set up to support Jeremy Corbyn, it's called for street protests and road blockades to stop what it's calling a coup. Right. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is the left-wing, sort of the actual Bernie Sanders of the UK. without Without the charisma. Right. So I've heard. I've, you know, I've never met him, but, you know, he seems like a thoughtful guy at times. But, yeah, He's Bernie thoughtful. can be very charismatic. And, yeah. and So how do you expect this to play out, Victoria? You said there's going to be protests. You said that there's going to be all this conflict. But do you think in the end that Boris Johnson is actually going to prevail? I mean, he seems to hold the levers of power right now. I think he might prevail. They come back from, you know, digging sandcastles on the beach September the 3rd. So they've got a very few days to get something done. And one ex-minister said today that next week could be their only opportunity to challenge a no-deal Brexit. And Corbyn is saying they're going to challenge it legislatively. Well, if they're going to do that, they've really got to get their skates on. Well, let me back up a little bit. We just have 40 seconds. I'm sorry to be interrupting you. Theresa May tried to get Parliament to approve a Brexit with a deal with Europe. In fact, she worked it out and Parliament wouldn't go along with it. What makes you think that Parliament might pass one independent of Boris Johnson, maybe even Theresa May's deal? I think they want to pass legislation to stop Boris. Well, if they stop Boris, that's going to lead to a no-deal Brexit, isn't it? I mean, if nothing happens, that that happens. It could do, but I think they want to stop the stoppage of Parliament. Oh, I see. So this is more about their power than it is about the policy? At this point, and then when they've got their power back, they think they can enact policy fascinating. Now I understand it, just like you understand the yield curve. Thank you, Victoria. 
Thank you. I appreciate your dropping by. Victoria Jones, she is the Chief Washington Analyst for the DC Radio Company. Her Twitter handle is Victoria Jones DC, our old buddy. Victoria, thanks so much. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Have a great, great holiday weekend, by the way. You too. Thanks. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Yesterday, I went off rather extensively on several rants about how if what I had thought David K. Johnston said it, apparently it was in that segment or associated with that segment, but it was Lawrence O'Donnell who said that he had a friend who said that he had a friend who had seen the Trump documents or knew about the Trump documents, the Trump loan documents from Deutsche Bank, and that Russian oligarchs had co-signed the notes. Trump's lawyers now have threatened to sue Lawrence and NBC for saying that. And Lawrence last night walked it back and said, you know, this was from one source, that he didn't follow the policies and procedures at NBC News, which require at least two sources and high quality sources. And frankly, by not following those policies and procedures, Lawrence's statement I'm not sure he acknowledged this on the air, but it gives more ammunition to Trump and to the right-wingers who say, see, uh, the mainstream media lies. This is probably the first time in several years that NBC News and MSNBC, for that matter, have been caught in saying something that they can't prove. By the way, it doesn't mean it's not true. We don't know because we don't have Trump's loan documents. I mean, that's the only way we're going to find out. Trump's lawyers have denied it, but hell, Trump's lawyers deny all kinds of things that it turns out are actually true after the fact. So anyhow, I wanted to acknowledge that and walk back my own statement. I was careful yesterday, or I thought I was careful, to always attribute those comments to Lawrence O'Donnell, or at least to his show. But in the event that I didn't, and I just went off on them independent of that, please know that it may well not be the case. I try scrupulously on this program to make sure that anything I'm telling you, I can back up with actual facts. And on those occasions where I do get things wrong, I encourage you to correct me on Twitter, which is the easiest way to communicate with me. It's, you know, you can also do it on Facebook, but I read the Twitter feed throughout the show and throughout the day. And I will, I'll own up to it on the air. I think that it's more important that people watching this program, listening to this program are accurately informed then that my sense of self-importance is, is not in, is preserved intact. That can go, right? What's important is the truth. So we'll see where this all goes. Let's try uh, Lisa in Southern Oregon. Hey, Lisa, you're Hi. on the air. I used to work in the insurance industry. I've had a couple of careers, but I worked for Metropolitan of New York and Mutual of New York. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was kind of ironic that, because I was educated by the disability community about single payer back when it was on the ballot in California, and it only passed in San Francisco because many of the people there had AIDS. And I just thought it was interesting that, ironic, that uh, Bernie is going to allow the insurance industry to continue providing health care denial to unions. If they choose to, I'm guessing that the unions are going to say, no, thank you. And what he's doing here is more of a, I believe, is more of a political move than a literal, you know, let's do this. Because I think it's really smart. I think it's a smart yeah. move because the narrative from the right is that this is a government bureaucracy. And you're going to lose your insurance. 
you're going to lose your insurance. So right. this way, uh, Bernie's saying, if you really love your insurance, you can keep it. But guess what? They'll keep it, and then once they get denied, when they have cancer right. or AIDS or whatever, what they're going to do is <laughs> they're going to run to the Medicare. Exactly. Or they'll keep it for six months, and then either the union or the company, whoever's paying the bills, is going to look at the cost compared to Medicare for All and go, this is nuts. And that'll be the end right. of that. Yeah, so I, well, think, I, I think it's political jujitsu. I think it's brilliant. I agree with you. Yeah, but also I wanted to share with you, I thought, something very important. The Office of Payment Accuracy and Recovery, which is a state program here in Oregon in every state. And when I was studying securities and all that in the insurance industry, they never told us about this. What happens is the state, when you die, the state takes away your home and your assets if you get state health insurance, uh, Medicaid. Or right. Medicaid. No, this is true of all the states. If you don't die broke, this only happens if you've been using Medicaid to pay for nursing care. And if you're using Medicaid or if you go on Medicaid at all, because Medicaid is for people in, with extreme poverty. And if you use Medicaid to pay for those things and you're not genuinely extreme poverty, you're not genuinely poor, and your assets are less than two years old, then you have to repay that out of the estate. We went through this when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and it was like, oh my God, you know, we're gonna have some really big expenses here. And option one was basically to bankrupt my mom, which was to sell off her house and you know, divide it among the kids and all that, and then wait two years, because you have to wait two years, otherwise the, the state will say, oh, this is a scam, you're trying to get around this. And then after two years, you go on Medicaid and then you know, the state doesn't come back after you. Ultimately, one of my brothers decided to take my mom in, and, and she lived with him until the day she died, and it was never an issue that we had to confront. But, but I'm certainly aware of what you're talking about, Lisa. Yeah, but isn't it a shame that we have to jump through these kind of Yes, it is a crime. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Interesting, just to go through some of the, you know, Trump said that he's going to make Mexico pay for the wall. Turns out that ain't happening. Not one inch of new wall has been built. They've been replacing old wall, and Trump has been tweeting out video of that. Trump followers have been tweeting out video of that as if it was new wall, but no. So now he's telling his employees, go ahead and break the law and I'll pardon you. Now they're saying, oh, he's just joking. But anyhow, Mexico, he said Mexico is going to pay for the wall. That ain't happening. He said he was going to jail Hillary. That ain't happening. Great tweet about this over at DU, that he's going to destroy ISIS. That ain't happening that he's going to release his taxes, that ain't happening, that he's going to halt funding sanctuary cities, hasn't happened, he's going to open up the libel laws, hasn't happened, thank God. He's going to repeal Obamacare, it hasn't happened, he's not going to take golf trips or vacations, that ain't happening. He's going to bring back 50,000 coal jobs, he hasn't kept that promise, that he's going to fight for the gay community, that ain't happening. He's going to give $4,000 pay raise to average American families, that didn't happen. Eliminate the federal deficit, that didn't happen. And Kim Jong-un's nuke program, that didn't happen. So many of us, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, throw the blankets off, then wake up again and put the blankets back on. Well, what if your bed did all that for you, essentially, by regulating its own temperature? There's a new bed that does that. It's called the Pod by 8sleep. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com is the website. 8sleep.com slash Tom, in fact. And the Pod dynamically measures your temperature. You don't have to wear anything. It's like the bed is actually measuring your temperature throughout the night. They know when you need a cooler bed when you need a warmer bed and it automatically adjusts all night long to keep you in 
a nice, pleasant, deep sleep. So if you want to sleep better, check out the pod, because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. They've already sold out the first two batches, so they're going fast for a limited time. You get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. And Congressman Ro Khanna is with us, the congressman from the Silicon Valley area of California. He's also the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Khanna.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, what's on your mind today? What's happening in Congress? What are the, you know, what's the big picture stuff that you'd like us to know about before we start picking up calls for you? Well, I think the G7 and the consequences of an absence of American leadership. I mean, the reality is you need the American president engaged with Bolsonaro on while the Amazon is burning. Why aren't we taking a tougher line, saying that we aren't going to give them the equivalence of NATO status, which is what this President Trump has done, if they don't get that situation under control and if they don't take steps on deforestation. And then with the uh, trade war with China, every day it's a new policy. And you and I have discussed this last time, Tom. I mean, what we really need is a policy that's going to build the industries in this country and have the government involved in the fundamental research and setting up the new industries across the country. So I think we're seeing the consequence of failed economic leadership and foreign policy leadership and the impact it's having on the world and our nation. Absolutely, definitely. And one other quick question. It seems that Justin Kennedy was the head of Deutsche Bank's real estate lending division, where Trump was getting his loans, a billion dollars in loans, including for the Doral, apparently. Justin Kennedy, who was the son of Justice Anthony Kennedy, and at the inauguration, Trump walked up to Anthony Kennedy, and Politico wrote about this, and said, nice boy you've got there. You know, he's, he's a good kid, you know, by way of saying, you know, I, I know your son and all this kind of stuff. And now there's speculation that Trump basically implied to Kennedy that his son's participation in Trump's crimes, or shady dealings, shall we say, may be revealed if Kennedy didn't step off the court, that that would reduce the political pressure. Wow. Uh, it, now, if this, uh, this is pure speculation. If these things come out, is that enough to turn the Republicans against Donald Trump? Was there some way that they could replace him on the ticket? I was tweeting about this. Maybe, you know, Romney-Haley ticket or something like that, a, you know, a quote moderate ticket. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on all that and how that might play out with your colleagues and how it might play out with the Democrats and how it might play into impeachment if these things turn out to be the case. Well, I've come out for an impeachment inquiry, and I think now you have the overwhelming majority of the House that has come out for it. So I anticipate that we're going to be very, very aggressive when we head back in the fall. And I'm on the House Oversight Committee, and Chairman Cummings, as you know, has requested the Deutsche Bank financial records. And Trump is so concerned about those coming out that he has taken the extraordinary step of suing in his personal capacity, not as president of the United States, but in his personal capacity to prevent the release. And of course, he's lost the initial uh, hearings because a president of the United States doesn't have the same expectation of privacy. So it would not surprise me at all 
if his real concern and the reason he doesn't want his tax returns to come out or financial records to come out is that it's going to show extraordinary influence of foreign lenders. And we know this because none of the domestic lenders, the New York banks, none of them were willing to lend him money. So where did he go? And that is something I do think that will come out in greater detail in the fall. Chairman Cummings is going to be relentless. Now, whether it convinces the Republicans or not, I've been saying for two and a half to three years, certainly this is going to get the Republicans to speak out, and I've been wrong almost every time. So I am reluctant to say that the Republicans are going to break with him, especially when he's polling at about 90% amongst Republican primary voters. I mean, he's not clearing 45% amongst the general electorate, but in these very conservative districts, he's still popular. And unless those numbers change, I don't see many Republicans, at least in the House, having the courage to uh, speak out against him. Is there any venue in which Anthony Kennedy could be questioned as to whether he experienced any pressure from Donald Trump to resign from the Supreme Court, or is that just beyond the pale? No, that's actually, it's the first I'm hearing about that, and it's deeply concerning, and I will uh, raise it with both Chairman Cummings and Chairman Nadler. I mean, either the House Oversight Committee or the House Judiciary Committee would be the appropriate places to uh, question him, and that's very much within the jurisdiction of the United States Congress, whether there was a conflict of interest that forced someone off the Supreme Court. And now the question is whether Justice Kennedy would be willing to speak, but certainly it should be pursued. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So let's pick up some phone calls here. People want to talk to you. Every single line is jammed up, and I'm sorry I've been monopolizing you. James in Spokane, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. Hello, guys. I'm not real familiar with this stuff, but you've implied that a lot of our antitrust laws, Taft-Hartley and such as that, they're still on the books? Taft-Hartley is not antitrust. I've been talking about the Sherman Act and the ones that followed it, and yes, they're all on the books. So your no, question yeah. for Congressman Kana is what? I just wonder why the president's Democrat and Republican have been derelict in not doing their duty. And I mean, my goodness, what can we do to hold their feet to the fire? There you go, Congressman. Well, James, I agree with you that these laws are on the books, but what happened is Robert Bork, who was a failed Supreme Court nominee, wrote a famous book in the 1970s that said that the only standard for antitrust, the only thing that mattered was consumer welfare. And it was a complete revisionist account of the purpose of these antitrust laws. The antitrust laws were there because uh, we didn't believe we should have big institutions with a lot of economic power, that that was subversive to democracy. They had nothing to do with consumer welfare. Bork reinterpreted the entire case law on antitrust, and as a result, the administrations have been very reluctant to pursue cases against monopolies because they argue, well, consumers are doing fine. In some of the cases, consumers aren't doing fine, but it's just given the businesses a hook in which to evade enforcement. There is good work being done by people like Lena Khan and Matt Stoller to reverse the Bork doctrine, and I think you're going to see the next Democratic president, especially if it's a progressive one, enforce antitrust much more uh, strongly and not be guided by the Bork principles. That would be great. I'm writing a book about Monopoly right now. In fact, I just got Bork's book, uh, The Antitrust Paradox. <laughs> I was reading it yesterday <laughs> afternoon. Aaron in Minneapolis, you are on the air with uh, Congressman Donna. Yeah, I'm calling about the burning of the Amazon 
And the underlying issue that it's being burned for animal agriculture and soybeans to feed animals and the worldwide market for that. And I have been campaigning to get the issue of biodiversity loss and a million species going extinct onto the democratic debates. And I guess it's, since it's so hard to get climate on there, it would be... So, Patricia, really what's your question useful. for Congressman Connor? Yeah, can we get biodiversity and extinction of life on this planet onto the democratic debates? Thank you. Patricia, we should. I mean, we should have had a climate change debate because it relates to everything. And we need to have a biodiversity debate because, as you're correctly pointing out, even if we could replant a trillion trees, which we, we don't have the technology to do, that's not going to bring back the biodiversity that the Amazon represents. I mean, it's not just about the trees. It's about the entire ecosystem that has taken thousands of years to create. So we ought to be debating this, and there are things we can do. I mean, Trump's trade war has partly exacerbated this because Brazil now sees an opportunity to supply soybeans into China. There has been no accountability from the Trump administration on Bolsonaro. And Macron, I mean, as well-intentioned as he may be, he doesn't have the standing to do something to Brazil. Brazil can disregard it. But the United States does have the ability, if we were to take action to get Bolsonaro to comply, Trump's just unwilling to do so. You were talking about Bolsonaro and Brazil. Do you think Congress is going to do anything about this? We should. I mean, we're, I have a bill with Deb Holland that would at least revoke their status as a non-NATO ally. And we should condition imports, which they very much need. They need American markets to them taking steps on controlling deforestation. I mean, they did that before in 2014, before Bolsonaro came to power. Of course, he came to power in a very corrupt way. And some of the progressives were speaking out about the imprisonment of Lula and, and other issues. But we need to make, make it clear that it can't be business as usual with Brazil, while he doesn't do anything on deforestation or doesn't take aggressive enough action to fight the fires. Yeah. Amen. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Louise and I like to climb a, I'm not quite sure it's a mountain, but <laughs> they call it a mountain here in Portland. It's, it's in town. Uh, it's a giant hill. And uh, boy, do we get sore after that. It's good. I mean, you get out of breath. It's good for your heart and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that's when we come home and we take some New Leaf Natural CBD oil uh, to, to just kind of ease the aches and pains. It's non, CBD oil is not intoxicating, so it's great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. And CBD is not toxic. It's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I, I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and you can save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. That's newleaf, N-U-LeafNaturals.com, for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls. And Aaron in Minneapolis. Aaron, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. 
Thank you so much, and thank you, Rep Khanna, for making yourself available for us. I am calling to talk about and ask about the new VSAP touchscreen systems that are going into L.A. County, which are very similar to the unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that are going into, like, South Carolina and Georgia and places around the country. I'm wondering why, why California and, and L.A. County, in such a progressive stronghold of this country, would be moving away from a paper ballot system to a completely 100% unverifiable touchscreen system, similar to what was going on in Georgia right. and South Carolina and all over the country, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Texas, West Virginia, Kentucky, New York, New Jersey, Kansas, Got it, Aaron. Indiana, Got it. South Let's Carolina, North Carolina, <laughs> okay. and yes, California. Okay. Let's Public get the answer to the question. Thank you. Well, Aaron, I'm very sympathetic to your point. I mean, Mark Pocan and I, Mark Pocan is the chair of the Progressive Caucus. We have legislation that he's introduced to have a paper ballot and verification system for every election county in this country. I mean, we need paper ballot verification, and not having that, I think, is a huge risk given what we saw last election cycle. So I can't speak to the specifics of why Los Angeles is doing that, but I think it's a mistake not to have paper ballot verification. Peter in Chicago, listening to WCPT. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello, guys. Two real quick things. One is, Congressman, I don't know if there's, uh, you guys keep talking about Trump's tax returns, and I think they should be out for the public, as well as all of Congress members' tax returns. So if there's not a bill, which I don't think there is, would you be willing to write a bill and have it sponsored that all of Congress and the president, vice president, have to put their tax returns out every year? Sure. I mean, I think we have those bills already, but I do know we have massive financial disclosures requirements for Congress and the Senate, which this president hasn't even disclosed what every member of Congress and senator has to disclose. I mean, it's really mind-boggling to me that, for example, for a member of Congress, anytime you have a transaction over $1,000 in any equity, you have to disclose that. You have to disclose in great detail any financial interests. And at the very least, we should have the president required to do that. But I would have no problem in a, with a law that says that members of Congress should also have to disclose their taxes. Tim, in South Bend, Indiana, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Right. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Congressman. I'd recently been diagnosed as disabled, and for some reason I've lost my insurance, and I won't be able to get Medicare Plan A or B until December 1st of this year. And I know Tom's talked about staying away from the Medicare for All plans because they're for No, not Medicare for All. Medicare Advantage. Oh, Medicare Advantage. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I had that wrong. But I was just wondering, you know, what do I do, you know, before December 1st in order to get, you know, coverage for dental, vision care, and prescription drugs as well? Yeah. Tim, thank you. Well, Jim, first of all, let me say I'm very sorry to hear about your situation. And this is exactly why we need Medicare for All that would cover the dental and vision and wouldn't have co-pays for prescription drugs. I mean, right now, as you point out, Medicare doesn't cover dental, it doesn't cover vision, it doesn't cover long-term care. And so the only option for folks, unfortunately, uh, is to take uh, private insurance. And then if they can't afford private insurance, they often have to be in financial hardship and end up on Medicaid. This is exactly why we need a strong Medicare system. And Bernie Sanders in the Senate has proposed that plan. 
In terms of your personal situation, if you contact our office, I'm happy to put you in touch with your member of Congress in your district to see if there's anything we can do. But unfortunately, there are a lot of gaps in the current system. How did these holes appear in Medicare? I mean, I've been trying to research this, and, and it's like the Internet is so cluttered these days. When Medicare was rolled out in the 60s, did it have these 20% holes in it, just waiting to be filled by for-profit insurance companies, or were they put there later? My understanding is that they were there from the program's conception because there wasn't an understanding as much about the link between dental health and your overall health. There wasn't an understanding about uh, vision to the extent that we do today and the need for regular checkups. No, I mean the, the, the 20% the Medicare bar B doesn't cover where people have to buy oh, Medicare. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think that those were there too, huh. but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, okay. I'm, 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 I've got to dig into this and find out it's making yeah. me crazy. Larry in Charlotte, North Carolina, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I'd like to ask a question to the congressman. How does he intend to pay for this Medicare for all? And I ask that because at 65, I wasn't given a choice to go on Medicare. And they take $125 a month from my Social Security in order to pay for it, and I can't use it for anything. I recently went in the hospital in, in 17, and I'm still paying off the bill. Okay, Larry, thank you. Congressman? Well, Larry, I appreciate that, and I agree with you that Medicare right now is not sufficient, and that's why we need to strengthen Medicare to make sure that if you are hospitalized that you're not going to have to be paying the bill if you're on Medicare. And I'd urge you to look at the bill that Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders have on Medicare for All. The first thing it does is make sure you're not going to have these out-of-pocket costs. How are we going to pay for it? What we're going to do is eliminate all of the profits currently that are going to pay Aetna CEO $56 million, that are going to the pharmaceutical companies, that are going to the hospital administrators. They're the ones who are making out under the current system, uh, and none of those uh, excessive profits are going to be in the system, and that's how we're going to be able to provide uh, better care for uh, individuals uh, under Medicare for All, and there will be higher progressive taxation and an estate tax. So. That's how we're going to pay for it. But your life will be better off under Medicare for All because Medicare is going to be strengthened to cover far more things like your hospitalization. Richard in Springfield, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Congressman, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I was wondering if you knew of a way that we could eliminate the fossil fuel industry influence in the DNC. That was my question. Thank you. Richard, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, not only have they not had a climate change debate, but the DNC continues to take money from the fossil fuel industry, and they continue to take corporate money, and I don't see why they need to do that. I mean, President Obama had eliminated corporate contributions or PAC contributions into the DNC. He managed to win two terms. So you don't even have to be as progressive as uh, Senator Sanders or Senator Warren. Uh, President Obama did that, and they reversed that policy once he left, and they've continued to reverse that policy. I think we have to really push hard to say that the DNC shouldn't be taking any corporate money. Michael in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, two Missouri calls back-to-back. Michael, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, hi, everybody. The Washington Post is reporting that President Trump has told his aides that if they do anything illegal in building a wall, he will pardon them. This, I wonder, would it be considered an additional article of impeachment by the Democratic House? And and just FYI, the, the White House has now said that he was joking. Congressman? 
Well, Michael, it's convenient how the White House, the only explanation they have for the president's latest outlandish uh, statements is that he was either joking or he was misguided. I mean, they're walking something back almost every day, but it's outrageous. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, what if the president of the United States were to say, go commit murder, I'm going to pardon you? Obviously, there have to be some restrictions to the pardon power. It's not absolute. We don't elect a king in this country. I mean, the pardon power has never been challenged or defined in the Supreme Court, but my guess is there would be abuses of that power that people would recognize violate a nation that is governed by law. My view is that uh, telling people uh, to go do something in exact defiance of Congress uh, constitutes that. Uh, And I think Congress should, frankly, we should limit and define what the presidential power, uh, pardon power is. Colleen in Long Island, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. What I wanted to bring up was the inevitable implosion of the Republican Party. And if you think of it like a business model, if you will, the fact that they cannot sustain what they have going. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about climate control or law enforcement or uh, educational debt. I mean, you just have everything that coalesces into this party becoming, you know, just frying themselves. And I wanted to know what the congressman thought of that. Colleen, I think it's an excellent point. It made me think of the analogy of having a short-term thinker as the CEO who cares simply about immediate profit maximization for the next quarter or the immediate earnings to satisfy the stock analysts and isn't thinking about whether this is going to be the good for the business four, five, ten years from now and often ends up bankrupting the business by cutting research and development or investment. I think that's exactly the model the Republicans are following. They are trying to maximize their advantage in the 2020 election, oblivious to the changing demographics of the country, oblivious to the young generation and the issues they care about, oblivious to the types of investments and technology that are going to be needed. I hope it doesn't succeed at all in the next cycle, but even if they scrape by with some victories in the next cycle, I don't think without fundamental transformation that it's sustainable for the future. Gail in Sterling, New Jersey, you're on the Earth Congressman Connor. What do you think the consequences will be for Trump's blatant trampling all over the emoluments clause and using the presidency to make money. Thank you. Yeah, it's one of the most distasteful parts of this president that he has privatized the public trust. I serve with people in Congress, Republicans and Democrats. There are very few people here who actually are in these jobs to personally make money. There may be a lot of other problems with them, but they're not as shameless as this president has been, who's promoting his own resorts, promoting his own properties. And the consequence is going to be that Jerry Nadler is starting an impeachment inquiry come this fall, and we're going to see all of that exposed. When is Congress back in session? We have 40 seconds. September 9th. September, so it's about two weeks. Yeah. Do you expect that? I think the broad public perception has been that, you know, the Democrats have controlled the House for what, a year? Almost a year? Yes, uh, almost a year. It'll be a year come January. And and things just seem to be moving painfully slowly. On the other hand, if a lot of this stuff really explodes, it would probably be more effective at taking down Trump politically if it explodes closer to the election than now. I realize that's putting a political spin on a legal issue. But what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think the, the reason it's moved slower than some people would have liked is Nadler and Speaker Pelosi were being very careful in making sure we built up the, the, the legal case that we did everything methodically. I think Nadler feels like he's in that position now, and he's going to be uh, very, very aggressive come the fall. So I, I, I do think by the end of the year, we're going to know where we're at. And I anticipate that it's going to be people will be pleased with those hearings. Great. And um, yes, sir. Really quickly, I had my staff, Will McKelvey, who does all of my health care work, look up the issue. And he said the 20 percent coinsurance under Part B has always been there. And it was part of the design that patients should, quote unquote, have skin in the game. Uh, uh, otherwise, they would overuse health care. I mean, a terrible reason, but th- right. that's what his research. Yeah. Found. Or maybe that's what it took to get it through Congress in 1960. What was it, 67, something like that? Yeah. So, yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. Milton in Suffolk, uh, Virginia. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Do you support the abolition of the Electoral College? Because we've had three presidents now that have been elected not by the popular vote. Well, Milton, here's what I support. I think that states, as California has, can voluntarily move towards a compact that says they're going to allocate their votes to the popular vote winner. And if you can get two states that up to 270 do that, then you, in effect, will render the popular vote winner the winner. And there are a lot of people who have been working on that. I forget where the pledges are at, but uh, I think that's the best way forward to reform the system. Short of that, also, you, you at the very least should have proportional representation uh, votes that wouldn't take care of all of the inequities, but it would be something that would, that would help. Dan in Williamsburg, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. My question relates to Michael Cohen's warning to the nation that there will be no peaceful transition of power. I'm wondering if Trump loses the next election and decides that or declares that it's an illegitimate election or rigged and he decides to stay, what actual power does the Congress have to remove him? And is there a precedent for any president doing this in the past? Dan, I appreciate the question. I may be overly optimistic, and you may think it's naive, but I don't think it will come to that, and let me tell you why. Here's the reality. I mean, in the 2016 election, the House and the Senate both certified the election. In fact, you may remember Vice President Biden was presiding over it, and he didn't even let Representative Jayapal make her objection. So it was overwhelmingly certified by the House and the Senate. I do not think the House and Senate would, certainly the House, would not certify an election if Donald Trump lost. And I have to believe that even in today's polarized environment, that the Supreme Court would recognize the House certification of an election election and that the military would side with the House and the Supreme Court. So I don't see a situation where Trump is there in defiance of Congress's certification. And we should be aware that it was the entire Congress that certified the 2016 election. Linda in Broken Bow, North Dakota, you're on the air with Congressman Cano. Is there any way that Congress can stop the deportation of the sick immigrant children? Hmm. Because they're going to do it in 33 days. Linda, it's a very important question. I was down in Juarez earlier this month. What we're doing in terms of turning away asylum seekers and basically return to Mexico policy, I think, is a stain on our moral conscience. And we are, of course, returning children who are sick 
in some cases who aren't prepared to make that journey and don't have sufficient nutrition or medical care. We will continue to do everything possible from Congress to hold the Department of Homeland Security accountable to the basic hygiene, health, and nutrition standards and making it clear that they shouldn't be transporting or sending back kids who have health issues. The second thing I would say is when I was in Juarez, there were 20,000 people there who were all being treated with decency, asylum seekers. I mean, they were in rooms with maybe eight beds and uh, it was in ideal conditions, but they had basic nutrition, they had basic health care. And I said to them, you've got 20,000 people. How are you dealing with this when we were not able to on our side of the border? And the person looked at me and he said, Congressman, in our country, we don't fear migrants. You do. And then he said, what is galling to us is that even you're sending them back to Mexico, you're having us house them, and you're not paying a dime. You're not even giving us the aid to to house them. So we need to fight hard when we're back in session. We need now the Senate to act, and we need the House to act even in more bold ways once we're back. And you're anticipating that happening. I do, and certainly from the House's perspective, I do, but we got to put pressure on the Senate as well. That's great. Congressman Rokana, thank you so much for being with us this hour. Thank you. Great talking with you. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one 888 gold Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. 
Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. 
For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's up in the world today. On the line with us is uh, Bob Nay, former congressman from Ohio, author of Sideswiped. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old and loving what you do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Hey, Bob, what's up in the world? Well, hello, Tom. I wanted to bring you a, a breaking story. I'm not sure how much publicity this will get, but it's fascinating and kind of sickening, actually. But this spring, the Justice Department prosecutors were ready to charge biotech giant Monsanto with a felony. And that was for illegally spraying a very banned, highly toxic pesticide and nerve agent in Hawaii. That was not far from the beachside resorts, by the way, of Maui. Was this an experiment, or were they just using a product that they sell in other countries that's banned in the United States? Or was it just banned in Hawaii? You know, it's battling the roundup, but right now all we know is that they were using something that's not defined, but something that has been proven to be toxic. And obviously, when they were looking to be charged with a felony, it was something that they should not have been spraying. I don't have additional information, but obviously they should not have been spraying it. Right, or they wouldn't have considered charging. Did that get blown up because of the uh, Bayer acquisition of Monsanto? Oh, no, this is better. Then that was this spring. They were right on the verge of being charged, all right, mm-hmm. with it. Now, by the way, this is from Project on Government Oversight, POGO, and they got a hold of this information from an internal April 2019 government document is where this is breaking from, right? Right. right. So what it did, Monsanto had its Washington lawyers intervene at the highest levels of the Department of Justice to stop the felony. And the key attorney handling the matter for Monsanto was Alice S. Fisher, F-I-S-E-R, who is a former senior DOG uh, Department of Justice official. And she also, by the way, played a part in keeping Jeffrey Epstein's controversial plea secret from his victims. Oh, my God. Well, yes. And now this gets a little better. So... She directly intervened with Rod Rosenstein, according to the sources close to this case. Then Rosenstein's office, after consulting with Justice Department's top political appointees on environmental law, then directed federal prosecutors to resolve the Monsanto criminal case with misdemeanors only before July 2019. Whoa. So that that was Alice Alice S. Fisher. Also, if you look back at her Alice's career, which goes deeper beyond this, she's been a hatchet woman all along for George Bush is what she was doing. She also worked directly like a chief of staff for Chertov when he was at Homeland Security under Bush. Then they moved her over to Justice Department with Alberto Gonzalez. And when it came to the Epstein case, she was actually in the Justice Department and was contacted. Now, Alice Fisher, by the way, attempted to become head of the FBI after Comey. That's a fact. You know, we have articles on that. Wow. Now, the reason I brought this article up to, and I can speak on it, in my book, Sideswiped, in 2013, years back, I have a chapter called Pretty Alice, and it details the antics of Alice S. Fisher. Oh, really? Which, you know, oh, yes, Pretty Alice. I called her that because every time she would come forward on TV to talk to me, she would be all dressed up and smiling and such things. Right. So we called her Pretty Alice, my lawyers and I did. And um, Alice Fisher is the one who also, by the way, hid from the FBI reports that were given to her waterboarding and torture. 
She has a history. Whoa. You know. Oh, yeah. Now, and she's working for, she for Trump now. Now she's functioning for Trump. She did it for Bush. She covered up waterboarding. She stopped Monsanto, who sprayed a toxic chemical on beaches in Hawaii near the resorts of Maui. From being prosecuted. Them from What's her official felony. position, Bob? She's just a lawyer. Just a lawyer in the Department of Justice? Oh, yes, in a huge firm, Latham. Yes, she's, oh, a, she's, she's a, a lawyer. Oh, she's a lawyer in private practice? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, how is she influencing the, the Monsanto decision as a lawyer? Was she representing Monsanto? She's representing Monsanto, and she called to the Justice Department to the highest level. She got a hold of Rosenstein. She called, uh, she called into his office and urged him to drop it to a misdemeanor, which they did. Of course, I would dare you and I to spray anything near a beach right. you know, and, and try to think we wouldn't be you know, in prison somewhere for 10 years. And she did that. And again, if you look at her history of cover-ups, yes, she left the department... Um, Senator, well, it's a long story, but anyway, uh, Senator Levin was after her because she was close to the Tom DeLay defense team. It's all outlined in my book, Pretty Alice, in my chapter. Uh, amazing. And the book she is sideswiped stopped. by Bob Nay. Yeah, Bob, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Great talking with you. Thank amazing. You. Absolutely amazing. Thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, as you're, uh, particularly as you're going into your holiday weekend here, don't forget the democracy doesn't just happen. It's not something that, you know, is automatic. In fact, actually, the roughly 200 years of roughly democracy that we've had here is a huge anomaly in the history of the planet. So we don't want to slide back to the old kings and kingdoms, right? So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.